you apparently have completely misunderstood John 3.16, probably one of the most famous, if not the most famous and most quoted verse in the Bible. The progressive Christian pastor, Reverend Salvatore Sapienza, is here to fix those beliefs, those wrong beliefs that you have. And here's a highlight of what he thinks John 3.16 is all about. Here's some clips from a video we're going to be examining today. That's, that's the reverend right there. And you start to awaken more and more to the light, to your true self, to your divine self, to your Christ self. Jesus said, you are all sons of the Most High. You are all gods. That's what Jesus said. If you believe that, really believe that, that you're a child of God, you are the light, you are gods. You're a heretic. You experience salvation. So it is not about becoming a Christian. And it is not about accepting Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. If the you of five years ago doesn't consider the you of today to be a heretic, you are not growing spiritually. Yeah, <laughs> that's the video that was sent to me. Um, and I, I just, you know, I wasn't sure if I was gonna do a stream today. And I saw this and thought, you know, there's something I could spend, a, you know, a handful of hours on and, uh, and actually share a stream with you guys on that I think will be fruitful. Here's why we're doing this. This progressive Christian pastor slash reverend, uh, Salvatore, and I say progressive Christian because that's the label they give themselves. I don't think he's Christian. Okay. I think he's, it's anti-Christ that the actual, and see, this isn't like um, me saying, oh, there's a demon over there. It's not like that. Rather, it's saying, Christ actually is is someone and he actually stands for something and this is opposed to that message so it's anti Christ it's a it's a it's a replacement for the true authentic Jesus but he has this 13 minute sermon called a progressive christian look at John 3:16 and in this sermon I'm skipping the first like couple minutes because he just sort of there's nothing substantive there he kind of like tongue in cheek makes fun of americans a little bit and then everything else I playing in full in full, without losing any of the stuff. You're going to see the entire sermon, all the substantive stuff, un uncut, even though I have it in segments. Okay, so it's all there. And why am I doing this? Because we learn a lot this way. We learn so much when we compare bad theology to good theology, weird teaching to solid teaching. We learn so much this way. It's an effective way to learn teaching, learn theology. And even scripture does this sometimes. Uh, God will, will talk about the falseness of idols, and then he'll talk about the trueness of himself in like the Isaiah in the 40, 41, 42 in these places. So even scripture does this. Um, also, second reason why we're doing this, it prepares you for conversations because you're going to talk to people who, who will fall for or believe or have, have been lied to and believe these things. And you'll be ready, hopefully a little bit better prepared to discuss it with them thoughtfully. And the third reason, and this is probably the most important one is it may actually save you since I've done videos on different groups, whether it's the world mission society, church of God, that mother God cult, or if it's uh, progressive Christian stuff, like from, um, Brandon Robertson. I've, I get messages from people who come out of these groups as a result of these teachings, these videos. And so maybe you're watching this and you're a progressive Christian and you're thinking, well, I thought Salvatore was a great, I thought Sal was a great guy, a great teacher. I thought he was giving me the authentic word of God. I encourage you to listen in, think it through, and maybe it'll save you. Maybe this will save you from that false teaching because I think you've fallen for something that's very, very sweet sounding lies. It's, it's a honey laced poison, you know? So progressive Christians, um, in general, that, that label, which is becoming more and more popular, um, it's, it's, it's a new, newer label for an old group. They used to be called the emergent church before that they would have just been called liberal Christians or something like that. Um, 
the progressive Christian now, they have lots of complaints about Christians in general. In this case, the complaint is that we've misunderstood John 3.16. And like I said, Reverend Salvatore Sapienza, and I've put his entire the link to his entire sermon down below in the video description. He's, a, according to the stuff I found online, he's a former Catholic monk. Although I'm not sure if he was really a monk or if he was just like in some other thing. Anyway, he turned a progressive Christian, in quotes, pastor for the United Church of Christ. His church is Douglas in Douglas... Uh, Michigan. Yeah, it's Douglas UCC or United Church of Christ. And as often as the case with churches that have the word united, there's like weird teachings going on. Listen, this is this is just so you know where they're coming from. They say, uh, this is on their about page on their website. They say, everyone, welcome, no exceptions. Douglas UCC is a progressive and radically inclusive spiritual community working to create a just world for all. We're actively engaged in social and creation justice. And we are one of the first churches in all of the U.S. to declare itself open and affirming, meaning fully inclusive of LGBTQ people in our church's life and ministry. We are known as the Church of the Extravagant Welcome. This you're going to find is a pivot point. It's like a really important, valuable thing. Here, here's some of the other sermons that Salvatore gives, right? So these are on their, on their YouTube channel. He says, being gay is a gift from God, or another one called Open and Affirming Sunday Gay Pride. Like That's the Sunday message that day. God is non-binary. There's another message. Holy Spirit, feminine aspect of God. Another message. And then this is one that maybe, it's like it, it, I laugh in pain as I, as I read it. It says, the hidden meaning of Jacob's ladder. And on the thumbnail, you can see what he thinks the hidden meaning is. The seven chakras. <laughs> so you have a ladder there that's got like the seven rungs are referring to these seven chakras. Like... This is the kind of reckless, I don't care what Jesus really taught. I have a pious new religious view that I love, and I'm going to pretend that Jesus taught it. That, that's the general perspective we're going to get here. But let me break it down, though. Um, I'm not here just to call names, I'm, but I'm going to call a spade a spade. And this is a spade. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to do it that very honestly. But here's clip number one. Let's break this sermon down. There's like... We're going through about 11 minutes of sermon video here. Let's break it down piece by piece and understand it thoughtfully using scripture. It is the one thing that he will not do. He will not use scripture. He will reference it, but he won't really use it. Here's the first clip. So what is it about John 3.16 that evangelical Christians love so much? Why is it their favorite, favorite Bible verse that they want to tell everybody about? Well, I'd like to think it's the first six words that say, for God so loved the world. Wouldn't that be awesome if that was the message they wanted everybody to hear and everybody to know, that God loves you so much? But sadly, I believe it's the latter part of the verse that they want to emphasize and make clear that Jesus is the only way that leads to salvation. The misunderstanding over John 3.16 has led many Christians in America today to believe that one must accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior or they will be condemned to hell. That is not what John 3.16 means. That is not what Jesus is saying in today's gospel. So what does it mean? What is he saying? Well, let's look at it together. Okay, this is our first pause. I want you to remember, because I'm going to pick up where I left off when I show you the next clip. He promises he's going to look at John 3.16 together 
like you would expect a Bible study here, like actually read the verses and look at them in context. That's never going to happen in his in his message. It's never going to happen, but it's going to happen for us. So let's just look briefly at John three sixteen because this will protect you against most false teaching. Is that you just read the verses yourself and see the connections in context. So briefly, let me just remind us, John three. This is a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. He's a rabbi who considers himself a pious Jew, right? And he acknowledges Jesus is uh, from God. He goes, we know you're a teacher from God to Jesus. He says this, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Then Jesus says to him this really radical statement, you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, even though you're a Pharisee, even though you're, even though you're acknowledging right? That, that there's something special about my teaching. Like you need something, some quality. And this quality is not just something you do or even just something you think or believe, right? You have to actually become born again. You need a new life if you're going to be in the kingdom of God, if you're going to be living eternally. This is the idea. Okay. So there's a requirement Jesus lays out for Nicodemus. In order to live eternally, you have to have an experience of being born again. Now they go in for a discussion that it talks about uh, being born of the flesh and born of the spirit and all these other things, right? Then when we get to John three sixteen, let me start at verse 14. We're going to get Jesus laying out sort of how you get that born again experience. How does it happen? What is required of you? So verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, he's talking about eternal life here. And the requirement is that you believe in the son of man. And he has to be lifted up. We'll talk about, Salvatore is going to reinterpret this to mean something like enlightenment. Okay, we'll talk about that later. Verse 16, then here's the verse. For God so loved the world. This is the verse. He wants to end you to end your thinking on verse, on the sixth word of verse 16. For God so loved the world. Here's what that doesn't work. The word so makes this an incomplete sentence because even in the Greek, like when you say God so loved the world, what you're saying is not, I love you so much. It's not in that sense of so, but rather in this way. God God loved the world in this way. He loved the world this much. It's not just so much, it's like this much. So that the rest of the sentence can't be separated from the first part of the sentence. God loved the world how, how much? What was his love like? Well, he loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is and this is why Christians love this verse, because it's in a nutshell, it's the beautiful message of God's love for you, that that you can, can experience being born again, entering into eternal life through just trusting in Christ because he was sent for you. He died for you. Christians love this verse, not because they, it, it almost sounds the way Salvatore, you know, couches it, that, that Christians love this verse because it condemns people to hell. Like that's the, that's what you would get from the last part of his sentence of his uh, little clip there. But instead, Christians love it because it 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 opens the doors to heaven. Okay, this is the condemnation is already present. This is about the freedom, the forgiveness, and that's exactly what the context is here. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. People love this verse, but they don't read the rest. But in order that the world might be saved through Him, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. So this becomes the one pivot point. Your faith in Jesus is the difference between having eternal life or remaining in condemnation you've already been under as and, and you stay in that condemnation because you don't believe in Christ and you're condemned specifically because of the various sins that we all have committed. It's okay to a progressive Christian. This is that old school, annoying gospel stuff, right? This, this drive, this is like nails on a chalkboard to a progressive Quote, quote unquote progressive Christian. Um, 
but it is the beauty of the gospel of Christ to those who actually trust in Jesus and believe what his word says. And that's what John 3.16 is about. Very simple. Very simple. Now, instead of going through John 3.16 thoughtfully and carefully, Salvatore does this. I'm, I'm going to play the clip of how he explains why Jesus is using the third person when he says, the son of God, believe in him. And you, you got to hear it. You got to hear it to even know how crazy it is. That is not what John 3.16 means. That is not what Jesus is saying in today's gospel. So what does it mean? What is he saying? Well, let's look at it together. If you noticed in the gospel, Jesus is referring to terms, son of God, son of man, only begotten son. And he says things like all who believe in him will have eternal life. Why wouldn't he say all who believe in me will have eternal life? Why is Jesus talking in the third person? You know, people who refer to themselves in the third person are often narcissists. <laughs> Jesus is not being narcissistic here. Okay? The reason Jesus is not being narcissistic here is because he's not referring to himself. He's not referring to himself. Son of God and only begotten Son are terms for the Christ. And I've told you before, the Christ existed billions of years before Jesus of Nazareth was even born. When God birthed everything into existence and said, let there be light, there was the Christ. The divine DNA was infused into all of creation. God so loved the world that God gave us of its very nature, its own DNA. <laughs> um, there's a lot to break down right there. But let's, let's slow it down a little bit and let's talk about the first thing he said, which is that Jesus uses the third person as a way of indicating when he says things like son of God, he's talking about you, not himself. He's talking about you. He's declaring that you're the son of God. Let's go back to the passage in context. John 3, 16, he does use the third person, right? And if I back up a little bit, he says the son of man must be lifted up. Okay, that's, that's third person. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's third person. Um, then we have this phrase, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You see, it's in the word only that we have a problem with this view. If Jesus is referring to everyone, each individual person as being God's son, then why does he say only? He's clearly referring to himself. He uses the third person as ways of giving himself titles that designate more about him than merely him saying me, son of God, son of man. These are important titles and uh, uh, very important titles. There's a whole study we could do on that topic, right? There's a lot of theology that's there, but it's not about making it about you. We have in verse 13, the only son. We have again in verse 18, um, whoever believes in him, right? Well, obviously, whoever believes in him, there's whoever is a group of people, him as an individual. Jesus is talking about you believing in just this individual, which is going to be obviously himself. Um, and then again, in verse 18, says it's the only son of God. You have to believe in the name of the only son of God or else you stand condemned. So Christ is really presenting himself as the only one. Now, 
we get more. Uh, John 1, 14. It says that the word, became, this is in John's gospel, same context. The word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, and dwelt among us. And, uh, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. This is the uniqueness of Jesus. There's never been anyone like Jesus. There is never anyone who is the same as Jesus, even though we're called in our character to conform to Jesus. Even though we borrow our eternal life from Christ, we aren't actually him. There's a big difference that's there. And so, um, yeah, John 1, 18, another verse for us. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. This is, there's, there's a singularity. There's a uniqueness that's there. Uh, another uh, translation puts it this way in verse 18 in ASB. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now, this makes sense on the idea of the Trinity, right? Jesus is God. He's also the only begotten but he, because he's the son, but he's also God. Yeah, this makes sense on the Trinity. In fact, I think it kind of only makes sense on the doctrine of the Trinity. But um, but there's an onlyness there, singularity there. Okay, so it's not, Jesus is not talking about you and me when he says son of man. He talks about himself. And this is, okay, if, if you think, if, if anybody out there, you were roped into believing that when Jesus used the third person, it was because he was talking about you. All you have to do is ignore me and everybody else and just open the, the Gospels and just read through and just read it and ask yourself, who is he talking about? Read all the way through. Don't just read individual verses. And you won't need any help getting clarity on this. All who believe in him, all who believe in him. Um, we'll talk, we'll talk um, more about this. But the idea here is that Jesus doesn't just want people to believe in him. He wants, like him, some generic third person thing. He wants you to believe in himself, Jesus. We'll talk about that in a second. But first, let me play the next clip for you that explains this in more detail. All who believe in me will have eternal life. Why is Jesus talking in the third person? Because he's not referring to himself. Um, well, that was a short clip, but that was the point. He's not referring to himself. Okay, this is the reason why I highlight this clip is because uh, it's a simple claim. Jesus does and doesn't do something in scripture. He talks about himself or he talks about belief in the third person. It's always in a third person sort of in him. Never says believe in me. Okay, it, this isn't, many of you don't need any of my help on this. Um, John 6, 35, same book, same Jesus. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, notice the, the first persons. I am, he who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus clearly thinks that this belief in him is belief in Jesus. It's the me that Jesus is talking about in John 7, 38. You don't have to go far. This is the same book, right, that he's quoting. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. How about John 11, verse 25? What you'll find with progressive Christian stuff, and this is often the case, they don't care what the Bible really teaches. They just care what preaches well from a progressive Christian standpoint. It's just the worst. The, the complaint, before I read this next passage, the complaint that I often hear from progressives is that the, these Americans have pushed their, their American views onto the Bible like we have Jesus with an American flag. And the thing is that most of us go, hey, there, is, there has been some of that. There has been some of that. But their solution to the problem is to just push their new American views, which that's what progressive Christian is. It's just a newer, uh, the, what America is morphing into. This is just new American views being projected on Jesus even harder than anybody ever has before. And so it's a complaint that 
does more of the thing that they're complaining about. But in John eleven twenty five, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So then the confirmation comes from her. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, right? This is a statement of faith about Jesus, not about self. To turn it from Jesus to self is to, is to do idolatry. This is where I, um, I attribute to, to self or I attribute to something other than God, the, the attributes of God. But that's exactly what we're being asked to do by, by Reverend Sal. He wants you to do this. This is the agenda. He thinks this is what Jesus is teaching. So based on his own principle, right, it backfires. He says, Jesus didn't say believe in me because then it would mean, right? Then it would mean that old school annoying nails on the chalkboard gospel that, that you know, those evangelical Christians talk about. But that's exactly what Jesus said. So I guess that means that that's exactly what Jesus meant. Here's the next clip about the cosmic Christ. When God birthed everything into existence and said, let there be light, there was the Christ. The divine DNA was infused into all of creation. God so loved the world that God gave us of its very nature, its own DNA. Okay, God doesn't have DNA, right? Like Jesus had DNA because he took on human form. So in his humanity, there is actual DNA, but it's human DNA. <laughs> so... Um, God doesn't have actual DNA. This this weird language of like the DNA of God. Like I've heard a lot of sloppy thinking happen when people try to talk about God's DNA. Um, so I think we should just avoid that sort of a discussion, right? There, You could try to offer some metaphor there if you want. But Genesis 1 and the creation account is not God creating a pantheistic universe where he puts his own divine nature into the world. That's what actually, when you look at Genesis 1, and compare it to other creation stories of, of pagan origin, you find there's a few very big differences that are intentional. This is like a big theological point God is making as he gives his, his inspired story of how things happen. And one of the big points is to say that God created the universe and it's not deified, right? The moon, it's just a light that governs the night. The sun, a light that governs the day. It's not a deity. It's not alive. There's darkness over the face of the deep, but it's not a battle with the chaos, with chaos to overcome this sort of entity that allows you to create like with uh, um, the Enuma Elish or something like that. None of that stuff. Uh, the islands aren't formed from the carcasses of fallen gods, like in ancient Japanese lore. No, they're just, God's like, let, let dry land appear. <laughs> like it's just stuff that God made. So it's the opposite of pantheism. That's the emphasis of Genesis one. But when Reverend Sal says it, he wants to deify you. So he deifies all of creation. God, God's, and, and he actually has a re, a new ending, right? Cause he doesn't like the ending of John three sixteen that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. He doesn't like that part. So he, he starts John three sixteen. God so loved the world and he ends it that he gave, he gave it uh, us, it, sell, and, and God becomes a third person, <laughs> impersonal it, all of a sudden. And then God's it DNA is in us. This is his John 3.16. If you can't tell this is heresy, it's because something's like wrong with your brain. Like, I don't know what you, it doesn't, you don't need help with this. Maybe help breaking it down a little bit, but not help seeing it for what it is. Um, there's one of the things though, let me, this might help, that I see is he takes light, 
to be metaphorical. So God creates light in Genesis 1, and he takes light to be a metaphor of like divine essence or divine nature. And so when God says, let there be light, he interprets that in his clip I share with you as God putting his divine DNA into creation. Except that in Genesis 1, when God creates light, it's just about day and night cycles, right? So it's not divine DNA. You see that, that, that that's where a word is taken. It's assigned some like a, a new age sort of concept, a metaphorical meaning, at least, even if you don't want to say it's a new age, at least it's this. It's metaphorical and it's a metaphor that's not present in the text. It's present in the mind of, of Reverend Sal and it's pushed onto the text so that now you have the opposite of what Genesis 1 wants us to think. Genesis 1 says, hey, there's a God. He's separate from creation. He's eternal. He's all powerful. He made creation and creation is just the stuff he made, not divine, as opposed to the pagan religions of the time. And then he reverses that entirely. Um, yes, there we go. All right. No, Jesus had an awakening. Now this is going to be his theology of Jesus. The next clip I'm going to share with you. And it follows again, I'm just playing through the sermon in order here. Um, it's interesting. It's a 13 minute sermon. It's like the opposite of me. <laughs> um, but I guess, I don't know, since he's not going to support things with facts and truth, he's just going to make claims. It doesn't really need as much time to unpack. So, um, Anyway, this is clip number five. This is where Jesus supposedly had an awakening. This is his theology about Jesus. Jesus was a man from Nazareth who lived more than 2,000 years ago. And during his lifetime, he had an awakening, a discovery, a realization that he and God were not two, but one. And because of that, Jesus was able to fully manifest the Christ. And he made it his mission after that realization to go out into the world and to teach others that they too could experience this oneness with God. And he said, follow the way. What was the way? The way of forgiveness the way of service, the way of unconditional love. Because Jesus knew that when you lived from that way, you stopped listening to the voice of the ego, the voice of the small self, the voice of separation and darkness. And you start to awaken more and more to the light, to your true self, to your divine self, to your Christ self. Yeah, you, you get it. Like these are, this is his bag of, you know, theology that we're just sort of pulling out and seeing over and over again. It's whatever was true about Jesus, we de-emphasize him. We even de-emphasize God. And we make that true about you. You're, you're Jesus. You're God. You're, you're, you're a Christ. You just have to like wake up and see it. And Jesus, he's not eternal God who came, you know, who's separate and different than, than the rest of us, who came into this world and took on human form, as it says in John 1, as it says in Philippians, as, as we have throughout the, the scriptures explaining this. Instead, Jesus is the same as you and me. He just had an awakening. We, this, is, this is kind of like a, a Buddhist type thing projected onto Christ. This is sort of like a Buddha, Buddha's like, you know, awakening, his, his getting of the truths and all that. Um, and the eightfold path and stuff. So this is Jesus. He's, he's just seen as someone who's an enlightened human and you too can be that. And then Jesus's mission was to just teach people that they are those things as well. Now, if you were with me in my, my series going through the gospel of Mark, 
we see how much Jesus labors to explain that his mission is to die on the cross for our sins that we might be forgiven and that faith in him is the way that we can receive that grace and forgiveness. That's Jesus's mission, to build the kingdom of God in the lives of people as they become children of God through him and through his sacrifice. He says that Jesus, um, he's all about the way, right? But Jesus, when he talks about the way, he doesn't mean I am the way, which is what Jesus actually says, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. These are Jesus's actual words. You want access to the, you're not the Father, by the way. You just get access to him. You're not God, but you get access to him through me. That's because I am the way. And there's no other way. No one else, no one can come except through me. And he's not even using a third person here. So you can't act like he's talking about some realization moment. He really just means that God has made himself accessible. Like, like we read in the, in, in the New Testament that Jesus is the one mediator, the only mediator between God and man, right? That it's Jesus. He's our mediator. He brings us together. That's the teaching from Jesus. Um, so on Jesus, on, on, on Reverend Sal's theology, Jesus is actually not necessary. It's just a realization that Jesus realized about himself, what you have to realize about yourself. This is self-glorification, self-exaltation, and it is a Christless self-worship as God. And it's with a smile. And I mean, maybe it would help if I was like, Jesus doesn't give you just awareness of your goodness. He wants you to know he's the only way. Like, do I have to smile and talk really slow and like use those speaker tricks to get you to, to track with me? Um, I don't think I do. So you don't need that awakening. Oh man, the, this, this theology of Jesus as an awakened person, Christ as um, something that's true about creation and about you, not as Jesus is the Christ, he's the Christ. It's not we're all Christs, it's, he's the Christ. There's only one. That's why he's the only, 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 only throughout scripture. Now let's play the next clip. This is where it talks about how you need an awakening. See, this is the real goal. You know, Reverend Sal talked about Jesus having an awakening. Not because he cares about Jesus. It's because he cares about what he wants you to do next. It's about you having an awakening. And he's using Jesus as a pawn. He can place his bad theology on the face of Christ so that you will swallow it more easily and that you will then jump on board. It gives authority to his false teachings if he can claim that they're consistent with Jesus. So here's the awakening he wants you to have. So Jesus didn't say that he was the only one. In fact, if you read the Gospels, he says just the opposite. He stood in front of crowds of people and said, you are sons and daughters of God. And he said, you are the light of the world. And he said, all of the things that I have done, you can do. And quoting from Psalm 82, Jesus said, you are all sons of the Most High, you are all gods. That's what Jesus said. Do you believe him? Because Jesus says in today's gospel, all who believed, all who believe this will have eternal life. If you believe that, really believe that, that you're a child of God, you are the light, you are gods, you experience salvation. Salvation, in Sal's view, is to embrace 
what the Bible would consider condemnable theology, right? Like theology that is blasphemous against Christ, blasphemous against God, self-exaltation, self-worship. I'm God. I just have to recognize that I am God. But but this fits with their real ultimate commitment, which is L-B-G-D-Q-A-O-P-D-W. I got the acronym wrong, but it's lesbian, bisexual, transsexual, and whatever you want the Q to stand for because people don't agree or the I or the A. It is that. And this theology, the theology that, that or the the social belief, right? That I'm going to support whatever sexual preferences a person has, whatever sense of self and gender identity they have. It really works well with a, a, a belief of sort of a pantheistic self-realization that you're God. Because if I believe that I, if I have to realize that I am just, I am the Christ, then it, it can really raise the authority level. Just like I said, Jesus's face, you put his face on your theology gives it authority. Well, when you put Jesus's face on you, it gives your emotional desires, your sexual desires, your identity preferences, what you want to say about yourself, it gives that authority as well. So it fits really well with the whole United Church of Christ commitment, at least the the one in Douglas, to their commitment to like um, gay pride and, and, and their view of gender and stuff like that. It's, it's the authority of self. I'm the authority. I'm the authority. Um, and that's <clears throat> where I think that stuff kind of like merges together. Why that theology is being pulled in due to a prior commitment, I think, to um, self-authority on sexual gender and purpose and all those sorts of things. I provide my purpose. I provide my meaning. I provide my identity. I tell you what all those things are and then they are that because I'm the authority because I'm the Christ. Jesus did not teach this. Um Let's walk through a couple of the things that Jesus, that scripture does teach us about these issues. So Ephesians 2, 3, this is where it can get a little, a little um, complicated because it is true that scripture does suggest that we're, I mean, teaches plain out that we are children of God through Christ. The difference between scripture and say Reverend Sal and the progressive Christian view here is that we don't start that way. By nature, we're not children of Christ. That means there's no, and a, a self-awareness of a unsaved person is to realize that they by nature are children of wrath. This is what Ephesians talks about. Let me read it to you. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is just humans in general. We're all, we're all like sinners already condemned, like John 3, 18 says in the context of John 3, 16. So we start out as children of wrath. But what happens is adoption. We become adopted. This is um, Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. This is how we get saved. Not through self-awareness. It's not that I recognize that I've always been um, amazing, right? Like just, uh, I'm, I'm amazing. I, I, have, I have this this powerful being in me and I just had to recognize it for what it is and stop holding myself back with things like guilt or self-condemnation or not embracing my desires. None of that's true. Instead, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that is, we were condemned, that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is, And this is meant to apply to girls and guys because adoption would be, uh, you'd, you'd have a higher status as a guy at the time with adoption. So here it's meant to say, guys, girls, we all have the highest status as children of God. Verse six says, because you are sons, God has given, sent forth the spirit of a son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So that my relationship 
with, um, with God as a child of God, it's not because I had to realize that I had divine DNA in me all along, right? It's not like Dumbo where it's like, Dumbo, Jesus was just, your, this is a great analogy for their theology. Jesus is, it's like Dumbo with the feather, right? Dumbo's got the feather and he flies with the feather. He doesn't need the feather, but it, it really helps him. Jesus is the feather in, the, in this progressive Christian theology. Reverend Sal is like, yeah, Jesus, you, you think you need him to fly, to, real, to, to have your a relationship with God, to have your, your, your status, in his case, deified status. Well, really, you never needed the feather. You always had the power in you. You just needed to have realization. This is why he can say, we don't need Jesus. You don't need to believe in Jesus. Jesus isn't the only way because he's the feather. He's just an aid in getting you there. He's not necessary. There's other feathers, other things that could get you there. That's not what scripture says, right? I'm the feather. <laughs> I'm the feather, man. I mean, it, <clears throat> that's too, saying too much of me. I'm, uh, I'm the big elephant with no ears stuck on the ground. And the only way I will fly is if Jesus picks me up and carries me. But in Christ, in Christ, in my association with him, I become a child of God. I become adopted. I become saved. All that is true. Um, another verse for this is Galatians 3.26, which talks about adoption. <clears throat> For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's See, I believe in Jesus and that's not you. You're not the Christ. You're not Jesus. That's obviously he's talking about the one and only. You believe in him. You become this child of God. Okay, so I, I yes, there's there's a, a thing that he's blurring here, that Reverend Sal's blurring, which is that there's an identity I gain by association with Christ that he acts like I have it because I am the Christ. Okay, that's a very different thing devalues Jesus entirely. Um, he says that Jesus said, you're the light of the world. This is a perfect example of the same relationship. He says that Jesus made us the lights of the world, or he says that we're lights of the world. But when you look at the stuff in context, you see Jesus is saying he's the light of the world, John one, right? And then by association, we become lights in the world because we get sent out in his name. It's only in our relationship to Christ that Christians become a light to the world. It's not because of our inherent nature. It's because of our connection to Jesus. That's the big issue there. You are all gods, though, is like the big one, right? The way, if you didn't read your Bible, the way Sal said it, you would think Jesus looked at a crowd of people and he says, here's an important teaching I have for you. You are all gods. Every one of you are gods. And when you believe this, you will have salvation. That's really not what happened. What we have here is a situation that happens a lot with false teaching take a challenging and honestly hard to understand passage and act like it clearly teaches heresy, right? So, so here's the passage. Um, he answered them, has it not been written in your law? As I said, you are gods. Okay. Well, Jesus is quoting something. He's not even talking to a crowd. He's quoting. Okay. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. Oh, this is obviously a much more complicated thing than him pointing at a crowd and telling him they're all gods. He doesn't say that. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. He refers not to the crowd, but to whoever the, to whoever the, um, the scripture came. Now, there's two different views here, right, uh, on this passage that I'll, I'll mention. Either, um, like, say, uh, Michael Heiser's perspective, this is about powerful spiritual beings. Most of us tend to think of these as angels. Okay, that's the word you'd usually use when you're thinking about this, this, this group. Most of us, not everybody. But it's about powerful spiritual beings, and God is... Telling them like, yeah, I, I made you these powerful beings. And the, and the word there in the, in the Hebrew is Elohim, which is not an English equivalent for gods. Uh, that's kind of a reckless translation, I think. Uh, although it's present in a lot of places. 
Elohim is not the equivalent of gods. It's used of like Samuel when he's disembodied. It's, it's any sort of powerful spiritual being. Oh, okay. Well, all of a sudden it changes meaning, doesn't it? Um, so the Heiser interpretation, as I understand it, would be these are powerful spiritual beings that most of us think of as angels. And Jesus is saying, hey, if these, what we would think of as angels, if these beings are seen as having like sort of this power and authority, how much more, how much more the son of God, me, right? It's, it's a contrast, not a comparison. He's saying, I'm stronger, I'm better, I'm bigger. Of course, I'm, I'm the son of God. The other interpretation, which I am inclined towards, is that it's a clever way to confuse and shut up Jesus's opponents here while asserting that Jesus is greater than anyone else. Um, that is to say, it's a confusing and challenging passage. He says, I said, you are gods. That meant that's referring to human authorities who've been given almost divine role because of governments get their authority from God. But God in this very Psalm 82, he then says, I'm going to kill you like men. You're going to, you're going to die like men. So this is not an affirmation of their deity It's an affirmation of their authority, but their accountability before God, and they will still suffer and die because of their sins. Whatever you say of Psalm 82 and John 10, 34, it's not about you being a God. It's about Jesus being more exalted than, than whoever Psalm 82 is talking about. Do you catch that? Jesus is a bigger deal than whoever Psalm 82 is talking about. Reverend Sal turns this, uh, what the Bible says about Jesus into what it says about you. And he just misquotes Jesus radically. He then says, all who believe this will have eternal life. Notice it's not about um, all who believe in Jesus. It's all who believe that they are gods. I mean, this, this is what I keep seeing with progressive Christianity. It's, <clears throat> it's as though the progressives have agreed with atheists about everything they don't like about Christianity. But rather than just abandoning it, they've reinvented it, a real straw man version of it that's very self-serving. And I sense the need, right? Because on atheism, you've got no, there's no real presence of hope. There's no real comfort. There's no real purpose and meaning. Um, none of that stuff. But the progressive Christian says, oh yes, there are all these things, but they all come from yourself. And so then you become this incredible authority in the name of Jesus. So most of us can look at this kind of progressive thing and say, yeah, this isn't going to, this isn't going to fly. Um, I think progressive Christians are going to continually see their congregation members leaving and becoming real Christians because they keep pointing people to Jesus, even though they keep reinterpreting who he is. Some of them are going to read the Bible and be like, wow, I believe this, not that. <laughs> this is going to keep happening. Um, yeah. Now I want to talk about an awakening moment. Okay. We, you know, you need an awakening according to, uh, this progressive Christian teaching. Let's look at somebody in the old Testament who had an awakening and it's, it's Job. Job, like this is a real awakening moment for him early in the book. He loses everything, family, health, um, wealth, all that stuff. It's all destroyed. <clears throat> then Job throughout the book is crying out that he wants to see God. He wants to talk with God. What does he want? He wants like an awakening. I want to know the truth. Um, then in Job 38, God shows up and God starts speaking to Job. God shows himself to Job and reveals truths about himself to Job. And instead of Job thinking, God is revealing to me that I am God, right? It's not the Reverend Sal thing. No, this is what Job says in, in response to this awakening, this revelation of the nature of God. Job 42 verses five and six. I've heard of you, Job says to God, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Like I heard about you, but now my eye sees you. Like now I really get it. Therefore I retract 
and I repent in dust and ashes. Let me translate. This is not Job saying, I am you. <laughs> like no way in the world. This is Job saying, I, 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 had, I had a beef with you, God. I had challenges for you. I had my moral arguments against God. And now that I've seen you, I realize I've, I'm just, I'm so small. I'm not, I'm nothing like you. I am just dust. I repent in dust and ashes. I mourn over my arrogance and the things that I was saying. Now that I've seen you, I realize how small I am and how great you are. This is the revelation every human needs to know about God is that God is way better and bigger and more glorious and wonderful than you. And anyone who thinks they could look at God and see themselves or look at themselves and see God is there's no awareness there. This is blindness, not light. Let's look at the next clip. This is salvation defined by Reverend Sal. I think I've played part of this for you, but I want to talk about it again. Salvation is not about the next life. It's not about when you die, you're saved in the next life. Salvation means freedom. When you awaken to this truth about yourself, you live a life of freedom. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. When you know this truth of your being, you're freed. So, let's take John 3.16 and translate it. What does it mean? For God so loved the world that God gave us of its very nature, its only begotten, its divine DNA, so that all who believe in it and live from that will live a life of freedom. That's what it means. That's what Jesus was trying to convey. Do you see his, his redefinition of John 3.16? Like, God so loved you that he made you God. <laughs> uh, no. That's just not what it says. Like, what, what Sal has done is he set up the, the, the beginning. We'll talk about the self-realization stuff in a second. But what he set up in the beginning was the idea that all these like, <clears throat> you know, thick-skulled American Christians, if you listen to the first couple minutes of his clip, that's kind of what it's about. He kind of like tongue-in-cheeks talking about Americans. Um, and all these, all these Americans, they love the last part of John 3.16, but not the first part. I love the first part. And what really is happening is it, the opposite is actually true. Everybody I know loves the whole verse and in the context, everybody that cares about Jesus and who he really is. Sal doesn't. Sal likes the God so loved the world part. And then he wants to remove it from, he wants to remove what? Jesus from the picture. And he wants to put you and your deity in the rest of the verse instead. Like this is, how do people fall for this? Right? Because I, I, I like it. It's, I like that theology. It's not whether it's true or not. It's, I like it. So I'm going to say it's true. And Part of the theology is teaching me that if I like it, then well, I am kind of an authority there. So I guess it is true. So you have to have um, a self-realization. But the self-realization of scripture, I mean, read Romans. I mean, literally, if you've never done this, read the entire book of Romans, just start to finish, just read straight through. And you'll see in Romans 1, 2, and 3, it begins with the realization of not you being God, but you being condemned, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And that we have, we're storing up wrath for the day of judgment when God judges the world. But that Jesus came, right? You read uh, Romans 4, 5, 6. You're going to read on that Jesus came and he ends up dying for our sins so that we can be forgiven for those sins. This is the realization. It's the old, annoying, 
Christian gospel that progressives will so often find themselves really bothered by. And they think it's American or something. Like, dude, if you think the gospel is American, I I don't know what book you're reading. <laughs> I mean, I'm reading a book that was written in Hebrew and Greek, translated into English, thankfully, so that all the rest of us could try to understand it, those at least who speak English. And here we are trying to follow Jesus, the real Jesus, and what he really said. And, uh, and, and you know, the thing is progressive Christians and, and, and conservative, like actual Christians, we all have issues with America. But I've got issues not because I hate America, but because the, I live in the world and I'm not of the world. And there's a general worldly culture that per permeates all of societies. There's a, a concern that I have that, that threatens my obedience to Jesus. That's legitimate. But this whole idea of self-realization, you, you don't... You don't need to self-realize your God. You need to realize that you're condemned already. And Jesus is the only way out of that, that you have sinned against God. And I know this is offensive, but I mean, <clears throat> think in your own life. Have you ever confronted somebody who did something very wrong and you, and you thought to yourself, they're going to be upset with me for telling them this, but I need to, because they really have done wrong. That's the gospel. The gospel says to us, Hey, you all have done some very wrong things. And it's going to offend you that you are a sinner and that you deserve to be punished. And you may, you may actually hate Christianity from that message. And that's your prerogative. You could do that. This is a choice you have. You can hate it, but you should at least admit for admit it for being what it is. Like don't change it. Don't alter who Christ is and what Christianity is. Like let Jesus be Jesus. And if you're going to hate it, don't, don't hate it in the name of Jesus. The first realization in Christianity is to realize I'm condemned. The second is to realize that Jesus saves me. Then you're set free. It is through humility that we gain the, the salvation and the freedom that there is in Christ. It is not through pride, which is really what's being taught here is pride. The, the self-exaltation of self-deity, self-Christ and all that is incredible arrogance and pride. Um, and that's why he's so happy because it's not offensive at all. <laughs> How's that offensive to anybody? Uh, unless... Unless you're, unless you're God, unless you're Jesus, unless you're committed to them. Um, let's look at the eighth clip. And this is where you will see it's not just Jesus. Um, everyone falls victim to the progressive Christian. There is no religious group or guru who fails to be hooked in and painted with the progressive Christian label. Here's where he's going to say everybody is progressive Christian. And I, I do want us to understand this because I think it's pretty relevant. The 13th century Christian mystic who was known as Meister Eckhart, said this, God never begot only one son. The eternal is forever begetting the only begotten. God never begot but one son. The eternal is forever begetting the only begotten. He wrote that in the 13th century. I'm not giving you new age mumbo jumbo here, folks. This is ancient wisdom. This is the truth of the ages, the truth that will set you free. Buddha knew this truth. Yogananda knew this truth. Mohammed knew this truth. Gandhi knew this truth. So it is not about becoming a Christian. And it is not about accepting Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. It is about knowing that the eternal 
is begotten in you, that it lives in you and as you. When you know that truth, you're set free. You're something. <laughs> it's not true. So it's, it's, it's you're knowing what you're knowing to be is a lie. But look at how everybody's roped in. Um, so just so you know, when he says this isn't new age stuff, because what? Because it's old, because Meister Eckhart said it. Okay, but just <laughs> let's just get really simple with definitions. New age doesn't mean brand new ideas. New age is the name of, of a group and it's a name of sort of like a loosely associated group of teachings. It doesn't mean new as in nobody's thought of this before. That's not what it means. So you can't say in the 13th century, someone said it, therefore it's not new age. What I'd like to hear if, if, if Reverend Sal or a progressive Christian wants to say that their teachings are not new age, what I want to hear is you say, here's what new age teaches. And here's where I disagree with that. Don't just be like, 700 years, 800 years ago, someone said it, and therefore it's not new age. <clears throat> That's not true. Um, Meister Eckhart, this guy um, was just a heretic. <laughs> like, I don't know, As far as I can tell, I haven't lo looked up a bunch of his teachings, but as far as I could tell, a little bit of research, it looks like he was just a heretic. And even the Catholic Church publicly rejected his teachings at the time. So it's not impressive to me that you can find an ancient heretic to support your point, right? Like... What if I was like, well, Alexander the coppersmith taught this back in the first century. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, of course, Paul, you know, pointed out that Alexander the coppersmith was, was harming the gospel of Christ. Uh, what if I say, well, you know, there's these other first century, like, it doesn't matter how old they are. It matters how true it is. So that's weird. Why does that matter? But also Buddha, Buddha is mentioned as, as teaching that you're all the Christ. Like that's not consistent with what I understand of Buddhism, especially old school Buddhism, which would not be teaching any such thing. There's no personification going. It's actually depersonification of everybody that goes on there. Um, Muhammad supposedly taught that you're the Christ. <laughs> um, so in Islam, it is one of the most important central ideas of Islam that God has no son, none. Not that everyone is God's son, which is what <clears throat> Reverend Sal teaches. In Islam, Reverend Sal, under, under, if, okay, if Muhammad was the one ruling where Reverend Sal lives, if Muhammad himself was there, Muhammad would have Sal killed. That's just the history of Islam. This is Muhammad. Like he would, he would kill, he would murder him for saying these things. And he's like, Muhammad understood this. Like this is just, who, we live in law, it's, it's spiritual la la land. I have these beliefs and everyone agrees with me. And I'm like, it's like, it's almost like a, a, a low quality conspiracy theory about religion that all religions are sort of teaching this idea that I really like, who cares what they really taught. If you go to the, go to Israel and there you see on the temple Mount, the dome of the rock, one of the most famous Islamic buildings out there and all, written on this side of the dome of the rock is a bunch of Arabic words all around the outside. You could see it from the outside, although many of us can't read that. But in multiple places, it proclaims in no uncertain terms that God has no son, that God has never begotten anyone because it is a great and terrible sin in Islam to believe in Jesus as he is, the son of God. Therefore, in Islam, it would also be terrible to think you're Jesus because they don't even think Jesus is Jesus. So there's no concern at all. <clears throat> there's, there, it's disrespectful to reality to pretend that Muhammad taught this stuff or Gandhi for that matter. Gandhi, who's got his own issues. Um, we, pr we popularly like Gandhi. Most people don't know much about him or what they do know is, is more like along the lines of propaganda. 
he doesn't care what these people really taught. Why is that? Because he has spent years not caring what Jesus really taught. Because progressive Christianity doesn't care. They, they see everyone as a tool for affirming the beliefs they've already chosen. They're not interested in what they really have taught. Everyone's a mirror. Muhammad, he's like me. I, I'm, the, I'm the Christian who like really gets it, right? Muhammad agree with me. Buddha agree with me. Um, everybody really, even atheists, ancient atheists, they all saw what I saw too. Everyone agrees with me. It's just the way it is. Now let's talk about symbolism. Oh man, listen to what he thinks the cross actually means as opposed to what scripture says about it. This is because everything gets reinterpreted through progressive Christianity. Every symbol, everything, it all means something new. And that's why the symbol of our faith is the cross, because it symbolizes where the human and the eternal meet and become one. <laughs> so can you imagine Romans? Romans are like, so we need, uh, we need to decide what shape, uh, you know, device we're going to use for torturing and slowly killing the worst of our criminals. And uh, some, some ancient governor, some, some centurion, perhaps a Roman governor or, or ruler, some Caesar says, you know what I think we should use as a cross? Because it symbolizes where the human and the divine meet. No, it's like it gives us somewhere to like stand the body up and somewhere to like nail or fix their arms as they hang there and suffer and die slowly. The cross is like the ancient equivalent of an electric chair of a gas chamber of, of, of a, of a way of, of a, of a hanging noose, a hangman's noose. Like imagine if the hangman's noose and, and someone comes later on and goes, well, the hangman's noose, we use it as our symbol because it represents being lifted up off the ground and elevated to heaven. And you're like, no man, it's, it's like how you kill people. That's what that is. The cross is meant to be a very shocking symbol of how death happens. Now there is specific, um, teaching the New Testament about the symbolism and the meaning of Jesus dying on the cross. And first off, the cross represents his death, his willingness to die for us, to give up this life, right, for eternal joys. Also, it represents us making the same choice to identify with Christ, to not be part of this world, but to be willing to die and suffer even for him that we might <clears throat> enter into eternal joys. So, so he says, take up your cross and follow me. He's not, you're where human and divine, like this is, no, that's weird. Um, in addition to that, the cross represents a curse. Galatians actually talks about this, that uh, uses Old Testament phrase from Deuteronomy that says, whoever hangs on a tree is cursed, applies this to Jesus on the cross. He hung on a tree. I mean, crosses are made out of tree material. So that term refers to the cross and whoever hangs on a tree is cursed. Well, Jesus receives the curse of the law. So the cross actually is worse than just the death penalty. It's a judicial death as a result of being cursed because of sin, because Jesus on the cross dies not for his sin but for your sin and my sin. It's that annoying gospel. It just keeps coming back over and over again. But he reinterprets this because the cross itself doesn't suit his theology. So he turns it into an analogy about horizontal and vertical things. Look at the bronze serpent analogy. This is how he reinterprets that. This is, again, the sermon right in order. Here's the next clip. Now, in our two readings today, the Old Testament and the New Testament, we hear about another symbol, the symbol of the snake being lifted up. What does it mean? Well, what is a snake? If you think about it, a snake 
crawls on the ground. It can only see things from an earthly perspective, a low understanding. Moses tells the people, and Jesus tells the apostles, take the snake and lift it up. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Stop seeing things from a low perspective, an earthly perspective, and raise your consciousness. See things from a higher perspective. <laughs> um, I'm going to let Scripture tell you what the snake is all about. So Jesus says, and this is in John 3, it's in the same chapter we read earlier, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so, the, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. <clears throat> now we've already established that Jesus is not talking about you, he's talking about himself. He's the third person here, but he's still talking about himself. We've established that already. So Sal's interpretation of you have to be lifted up, you have to, and, and that the snake's all about perspective, let's deal with the perspective part. Um, <clears throat> so Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness because the people were complaining against God in Deuteronomy. You can read about this. And God sent serpents into the camp and they bit the Israelites and the Israelites were poisoned by the biting and were dying. And so God's judging them for their sin, their rebellion against him. They're being judged. God tells Moses, make a bronze serpent and on a pole and stick it in the middle of the camp. And if they look at it, they will be healed. They, they, they won't die anymore. This is a picture Jesus uses to illustrate how Big reveal here. The judgment for our sin, which is ultimately death, right? Pictured here by snakes biting or pictured by Jesus on a cross, suffering the curse, the, the punishment of death for sin. That has to be lifted up with some sort of prime example, some sort of um, your judgment is here. And if you just look at it, you just trust, you just believe, then you will be saved, well, Jesus uses this illustration about snakes and a particular judgment to be an illustration about all judgment and all of sin and all of mankind's suffering. So he says, as the serpent was lifted up, so the son of man must be lifted up. But does lifted up refer to the cross or does it refer to uh, having a heightened awareness, a concept which is simply not present anywhere in the Bible? John twelve thirty two. Jesus says, and when, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then in case Reverend Sal gets a hold of you, John decides to add some commentary by the leading of the Holy Spirit to explain what Jesus meant. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The son of man being lifted up is about the cross. It is not about your self-awareness of realizing that you're God or some other um, totally unchristian and unbiblical thing that Jesus would not never tolerate, not remotely. Now, I have a whole teaching on this issue of the bronze serpent that I think is beautiful and wonderful about the symbolism and the representation that's really there in the scripture. I've linked that down below if anybody's interested. It's in the, it's in the uh, video description. The bronze serpent, really cool stuff. Um, now let's talk about uh, Lent. He, says, he said in the, uh, in the previous clip, he says, this is what Lent is about. We have to go to a place of wilderness, which is a place of quiet. In scripture, is wilderness the place of quiet? Well, no, wilderness, I mean, read, read, read Exodus, right? Well, the wilderness is where they go, right? Because they're not in the promised land. When they reach the promised land and they're put out into the wilderness, or when after um, rebelling against God, they're kicked out of the promised land, that's where they are in the wilderness. So the wilderness is a place of testing. It's a place of trial. 
And it's also a place of judgment when they're not experiencing the blessings of God. It's not a place of quiet. It's not like for 40 years. Could you imagine the Israelites are in the wilderness for 40 years with Moses and they're like, oh, <laughs> Moses, we don't want to enter the promised land because it's so quiet here. It's so nice. Like, no, the wilderness is not a happy place to be. So that that's just, again, taking the symbols of scripture, assigning new meanings so that you can turn it into like whatever new age stuff you want. He says that Jesus said the kingdom of God's within you in the previous clip. That's um, on his view, this means you are God's. But on Jesus's view, he meant the kingdom of God is not going to be about establishing a government in the world. It's about establishing people who are part of the kingdom of God. It's within you. It's not outside where you sign up. It's rather you internally, you put your trust and faith in Christ. You become part of God's kingdom. And the, and the earthly kingdom comes much later. Here's the last clip. Here's the last clip unquestioningly just took on from childhood. Oh, hold on. Jesus is the only one. I got to restart. I started just a little bit early. And for some Christians, the things that they need to give up are very limiting beliefs, religious beliefs that they unknowingly and unquestioningly just took on from childhood. Jesus is the only one. Oh, okay. Never questioned it. And sometimes in order to grow spiritually, we have to get rid of those limited religious beliefs. Now, the 20th century Christian mystic, Thomas Merton, said, if the you of five years ago doesn't consider the you of today to be a heretic, you are not growing spiritually. We must give up those things that are keeping us from growing spiritually, from recognizing our light. So I hope that for the remainder of the season of Lent, you will find time each day to go out into the wilderness, to become still, to hear that still small voice within, and to awaken more and more to the truth of your being. When you know this truth, you will be set free. All the people say amen. amen. Namaste. Namaste. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, I mean, he's a false teacher. Like, obviously, he's a, he's a false teacher. But... What policy is this that spiritual growth means that you from five years ago should view the you of today as a heretic? I'll bet you that Reverend Sal's theology has not changed much in five years. These are all just one-sided policies. And this is, this is progressive Christianity. And a lot of, a lot of the time it's, it's, I'm going to have standards for those fundy Christians, right? That I don't have for myself. Fundy Christian, you can't just accept things without really looking into them. You can't just take things for granted. You need to reevaluate your theology. You know, progressive Christians, guys, don't worry about the context. It's about like elevating yourself. Don't think too deeply about the things I'm saying. I know Muhammad would cut my head off, but trust me, he was progressive like I am. He thought I was the Christ. <laughs> um, you know, don't look too deeply at, at what Reverend Sal says, but definitely be critical of whatever you grew up as because they generally see... Um, 
progressive Christians often see themselves as target. Their target is Christians, right? We want to take those in the church and turn them into our version of Christian. That's their focus and target. So it's not exactly evangelism. It's more about um, changing them. I mean, ask yourself, if you're a progressive Christian and you've tolerated what I've said up to this point, which I'm glad you have, then ask yourself this. If you met a Muslim and you met a very conservative Christian, which one are you more interested in changing their mind on? You're more interested in changing the mind of the conservative Christian, aren't you? If you met an atheist and you had a conservative Christian also, which one are you more, if you could push a button and one of them would, would change their beliefs and believe what you believe, which one would you do it to? Right? Because the real opponent of, of progressive Christianity is Christ and Christianity. It's, it's not about evangelism to the world. It's about changing Christianity into its own image, changing Jesus into a reflection of self for self-worship. It's the subtle pride of progressive stuff. But I am my rule will be this. Don't become a heretic every five years. Instead, if Jesus and the apostles would call you a heretic, that is not a sign of spiritual growth. <laughs> I want to be conforming myself to the scriptures and to the word of God, not conforming that to me. I want to change my views as I discover in the Bible that my views have been wrong. I want to be open to change. I don't just want to take things for granted. I don't just want to absorb everything that any pastors taught me over the years. I want to know what God has said in his word. I know that as a Christian, I come up in a certain culture, in a certain group, and I probably have some wrong beliefs in mixed in with my right beliefs. And I want to be willing to change those. But I will do it all in the name of loyalty to Christ and trust in God's word and not to celebrate heresy. You should, ha ha ha, think you're a heretic every five years. <laughs> but they never do. In five years, Salvatore has not changed his views on homosexuality. No, he's completely supportive of it. He hasn't changed his views on uh, Jesus being unnecessary for salvation. <laughs> this, is, this is completely uh, one-sided criticisms. But this will not take over. Progressive Christianity is not going to take over Christianity because Jesus is going to secure his church. And the beautiful thing about Christianity is that we always have the Bible to go back to. And people who try to hijack Christianity, they inevitably put Bibles in those people's hands. And some of those people will open that Bible and read it and go, I think I'm going to actually follow this Jesus person, not what you've said. And so Christianity has built into its, we'll use the term DNA here in a very loose way, has built in this automatic revival making mechanism called the Holy Spirit and the scriptures. And that's why these progressive churches, what happens historically seems to happen is a church grows, progressive come in, they take over, and then it slowly dies as new churches start up that are committed to serious Christian values. Over time, they often shift because progressive Christians are more about taking over than they are about evangelism and starting new things. Um, so it, it's it's going to take victims, but it's not going to overcome. You know, the gates of Hades will not overcome the Church of Christ. I think this reminds us of how good and needful it is to know the Word of God, and I hope that today's video helps you guys evaluate things a little bit more carefully, listen to things more thoughtfully, understand. Oh, that's the same Christian word I use, but it's a different definition. <laughs> Wilderness doesn't mean that. Cross doesn't mean that. Right? Christ doesn't mean that. And you realize that a lot of times these battles take place in what they are not saying. And that's why we have to sort of look at the implications. I hope that it's helped. Before we go, you got to see my cat. There she is. There's Moxie. <laughs> I moved her chair and she decided to not look at you.
Ah, she's a kitty cat. You know what she does? I'll tell you guys this because I don't know why. I will usually I sit in that chair. I'm like in a fold out chair right now because it's better for doing streams. But usually I'll sit in that chair. This cat will wait until I get up out of my chair and then hijack my seat. She's gotten so entitled <laughs> that she's at the point where she will actually um, she will actually come up to me and meow at me asking me to get out of the chair so she can get in it. And I'm I'm such a pushover that I'll, I'll do it, actually. So Anyway, that's, that's, that's all we got. I got the link below to the original video I'm refuting here. And if you haven't seen my, my teaching on Jesus, um, how he is lifted up as the bronze serpent, and this is amazing typology of some of the hard things of the gospel, that video is linked below, and I hope you'll check it out. I'll try to put a, a link up on the screen somewhere for it as well. Thank you for joining. Thanks for the mods being here. I will see you guys on Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time for the Q&A where I'm answering your questions live.